invite you to check out my website, karagoodwin.com. I'm adding more resources all the time to assist you in your meditation journey. Sign up right on the homepage to receive a free 10-minute guided meditation that will fill you with light and peace and give your nervous system a reset. You can also find powerful offerings to help you start or amplify your existing meditation practice, including the Meditation Immersion Program to get a solid foundation to your meditation and the Healing Hearth Ongoing Program for regular online meditations and guidance. Thank you so much for your support and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the Meditation Conversation. I'm your host, Kara Goodwin. And I'm so excited today to have Susan Nylans and Jacqueline Freeman on the show. So Susan and Jacqueline have just released a brand new book called What Bees Want, Beekeeping as Nature Intended. And I am reading this book now, and it is just this gorgeous, gorgeous book. It's full of amazing um, insights, amazing illustrations as well. Um, but Jacqueline and Susan love their bees so much that they spend hours each day observing and interacting with them. And in their beekeeping, they adopt a very bee centric approach where they strive to keep the environment of their hives as similar as possible to what bees prefer in the wild. And their latest, latest book chronicles their wisdom to help beekeepers keep their practices as beneficial to the bees as possible. So even if you're not a beekeeper, you, you may be a regular listen, listener to this program and know that I have a couple of hives, so, um, so I'm, I'm very interested in this topic, but I think that even if you're not a beekeeper, you'll still find this interesting. Um, I was very moved by Jacqueline's earlier book, Song of Increase, and Susan, I know you also had a heavy hand in that one, um, and it really explored the mystical nature of bees and their multidimensionality and how we are all connected to each other and to nature. So having read that book and experienced that spiritual uplift that it offers, I invite this talk to be a mix of practical advice for beekeepers and also highlighting the magnificence of the honeybee and some of the things that they're here to help the planet and humanity with. So welcome, Jacqueline and Susan. It is really an honor to have you here today. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yes, thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. So I would love to just start with getting a sense of how you got to where you are now, because people who are listening may think like, well, yeah, aren't all beekeepers keeping the bee in the center of their practice? And it's surprising that that's, this is actually kind of an alternative way to keep bees. And we can get into that more over time. But how did you, because you guys are pioneers, really. I mean, at least the way that I see um, your practices. So uh, where did your bee interest start? Let's, um, let's start with Susan. My bee interest started when I came to the Northwest and I knew that I wasn't going to be doing serious wildlife rehabilitation anymore. And where did you come from? Where did you I move came, from? I've, I've been a gypsy I've lived oh. everywhere, but I came from Indiana. Yay, Indiana. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I'm thinking, well, I need to be, I, I want to be involved with nature and animals in some different way. And I don't know what that will look like. And I saw an advertisement that Jacqueline was having for a retreat with Mikhail Teeley called something like the sacredness of bees or something. And I thought, oh, well, my mom always told me I was allergic to bees, but I pretty much never listened to her anyhow. So why don't I go and try that? And I came home after two days, just like a zealot. I, I brought home old pieces of very old broken comb and was showing up to my family. Look, bees, bees. <laughs> it just, I, Mikhail's work and Jacqueline's was amazing. And, that, and, and Mikhail has been on the podcast too. He's, I'll put a link to that. He's a, he's a wonder. And so going yeah. there and just being told, let's just be with the bees. Well, okay. And then having the bees come out to visit with, with us and circle around us is like, this is a different world. This is a, a different world I've never experienced. So so thank you, Jacqueline and Mikhail. That's how I, I got started. Oh, beautiful. And how about you, Jacqueline? 
I think Susan and I met about 10 years ago. I've been working with bees for 20 years and um, it just, you know, started out, it was before bees became popular. So there weren't a lot of options for learning about bees. Someone, I had a girlfriend who, um, her next door neighbor had just bought land and, and they found an old beehive in the backyard and the, the people didn't want it. So they asked if I did. Um, we have a, a farm. Uh, although it was very, very beginning days of it. And I said, sure, bring it up, put it here. And I was, and I had no idea how fascinated I would be by them. I was just every day I went out dressed in my bee suit, looking like, you know, like, <laughs> like a Darth Vader suit, <laughs> just sat next to them with a chair, like next to the entrance and just spent literally hours every single day. I was, I couldn't, I had no idea why I was so drawn to them, but I sure was. Mm. And then I started, uh, I did go to B school. Um, in B school, I remember every day for two days, just going, hmm, that's not something I'm going to do. Uh, it, it was all around maximizing honey, minimizing, um, uh, well, swarms and natural, natural keeping methods. Um, it was all about putting chemicals on your bees. And it was kind of just around the time when we were really being inundated with varroa mites and stuff like that. So it was kind of an open territory as far as how to deal with them. But essentially it was chemicals. And I was like, well, I have an organic farm. I can't do that because everything on the farm is organic. What, except the bees? So yeah. I had a ton of questions and I had nowhere to go. There were no really good books out about how to do natural beekeeping. There were certainly no classes in my area or beyond. <clears throat> and, uh, <clears throat> and I remember asking the bees saying, you know, I want to do right by you. And I don't know how to do that. So, and I would literally talk with them. I would say, you're going to have to teach me how to do this because I don't know, but I don't want to screw it up. So help me out. And I did. I just was sitting next to watching them and talking to them. And I went for years um, just doing that, just trying to listen to my intuition about or look at some practice and say, now, is that something I can really stand behind, you know? Mm -hmm. And so many things I didn't know what to do, but I knew that the process that was being done mainstream was not what I was intending to do. It had a lot of things that were, I just knew were not right. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, after a certain point, um, I started one morning getting some information just kind of passing through me. And I wrote it down. I had a notebook and I wrote it down next to me and was surprised to find out that this information was something that I didn't know the day before. It was like a transmission. And um, I had a whole bunch of those that happened and I wrote them all down or my husband helped me write them down so I could pay attention to them. And I didn't know what to do with them. I was teaching classes by then on my winging it and trying to come <laughs> to be as eccentric as possible and kind to the bees. And Susan showed up at one of my classes and I mentioned that I had all this information and I didn't quite know what to do. I hoped it would turn into a book, but I'd never written a book before. And then um, I, I think I gave you some stuff to take home and read, Susan, if I remember right. Well, what was really funny is she handed me this um, um, a few pages of writing and said, um, I would like to write a book about this. And she sent it out to all of her friends and said, can you give me some guidance or what do you think about this or blah, blah, blah. And, and then she wrote me back and said, all of my friends said, go for it. That's great. And what I sent her back was, who is your audience? Is this a book about teaching about how to care for bees or is this about bees themselves? What are you really wanting to say? And this might be a way to organize it. And she said, you were the only one who came back with any ideas on how you would actually do this. And that's because I, I'd written five other books. So it was like, yeah, I know how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Jacqueline said, do you want to help me with this? And what can I pay you? 
And I said, um, make the, your classes free to me. That's all. Because I figured in working on the book, I was going to learn scads. Mm -hmm. And I did. You know, yeah. Jacqueline would have these writings and I'd say, what do you think this means? What do you think is happening here? What do you think would happen if we did this? Or do you think maybe the bees might mean this or clarify this? I don't know what this means. And so it took us about a year or so. Yeah, about a year. And yeah. And I would like go over to the farm and stay for a couple of days at a time. And we just work and talk and write. And I passed stuff to Jacqueline. I said, here's some pieces, take a look at them. And then she'd go, oh, I can work with this. And ju -ju 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 -ju. and then I'd pass So easy. Through. Once Susan got involved, she would say, this needs a story. This needs uh, some background information. It was like, I just felt like I was plugging stuff. It was essentially written. It just wasn't in. You had to fill it out. Yeah, it wasn't in the proper order for a book. And that was what really helped me to do was to put a structure underneath the content. So oh, well, yeah. that, that was oh, grace of God. I'm so glad you came to that class, Susan, because that really <laughs> made a difference. What I, and, up until then, all the information that I had, it was kind of like it was like a globe. Everything, nothing was chronological. It wasn't on a straight line. It was that this related to this that had influence on this that related to that. And uh, I, I remember saying to my husband, I don't know how to write this because there is no sequential activity that happens. Everything is related to everything else. Everything is related to everything else. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's a beautiful product. So you guys did an amazing job. The output is fantastic. And the person who um, recommended Song of Increase to me uh, is not a beekeeper. So I met her on a spiritual retreat. And we passed some hives and I mentioned, or, and I, or I had a, a bee necklace on or something. Somehow it came up that I was a beekeeper and she's like, oh my God, have you read Song of Increase? She's like, I really want to keep bees, but I, I don't, but I, but this book is amazing. And so it had really touched her, even though she's not a beekeeper. It's, it's really beautiful as as is what bees want. Really amazing books. So thank you so much. We kind of decided to do what bees want because we realized that after song of increase there were a lot of people saying how do you do this and after we went to europe and met people who were doing all kinds of different ancient natural beekeeping things and we had a chance to meet and and get to know tom seeley and torben and all of this information we never heard and it was like we're doing this. We're doing this. We were right. Yeah. We were right. I mean, we're right. It, it was uh, so confirming because there was nothing in America that we were seeing that was like, it's like, geez, we're really divergent in a big way. And then we got to all the Slavic countries and Germany and France and England and all these countries, had, Portugal, um, had beekeepers that were doing bees the same as we were doing them. But they had history behind them that we just sort of stumbled into it. And then so between Tom and Torben and then all of these ancient ways between um, Zeidlers who are tree beekeepers and people that were doing skeps and people that were modifying hives so they would look like logs but would be lighter and all these different ways. And man, we were there for two days and I said, Jacqueline, I will never have to question the way that we keep bees again, like not only is there history behind us, but all the science is behind us. We were on the right track. And so whatever the bees told Jacqueline, it all ended up being proven to be correct down the line. It's like, holy cow. So it was like a watershed moment. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So as we've been talking about, your approach is very min minimalistic in terms of intruding on a hive. So um, tell us why that is. I mean, we talked a, we talked a bit about that, just wanting to keep the um, keep it as close to the wild as you can. But if you have anything else about why that approach, and then um, also some of the differences between the this bee centric approach versus conventional. 
Well, first of all, if you go to B school in, in America, you're pretty much taught to um, inspect your hives, do hive inspections. If you don't do it every week or two, you're a bad beekeeper. And of course, we have the complete alternative approach to that. Um, from my understanding, I work directly with the bees. Things, ideas pop into my head when I'm working with them. And I assume that that comes from the bees because it's often about things that I didn't know. And uh, one, of remarkable. The, one of the things about it, well, they're interesting because it isn't like I can sit down and ask a question and have them answer. Right. It doesn't work that way. Oh, it's, okay. What they give me as information at the time and they feel like that was an important piece of information. Um, but something else, maybe I'm not ready to hear the answer yet. So I put questions out there, but I don't always get answers. Um, when Susan, did you want to add anything to that? I, I wanted to say that one of the things that I have noticed over the years is that in keeping bees this way, firstly, if bees wanted you in their hives, most people wouldn't have to wear a hazmat suit to get into the hives. It's very clear that they don't want our intervention and that our intervention is not helpful. So Jacqueline and I don't intervene much at all. I don't think I ever open my hives. Once the bees are in them, the bees are in them for as long as they are. And, and what we've noticed now is when you keep bees like this, these are no longer the same bees as they would be in a Langstroth thin box with none of these additional um, helping elements for them. So the bees are more stressed. When you go near them, they are angrier. They're working very hard and don't want you in their way. And I, I just tell people, you know, my bees just aren't like your bees anymore. They, mm -hmm. they're, we don't need gear much. Um, you know, our bees land on us all the time. We collect swarms without gear. We just work with our bees in, in a way that's so relaxed and happy with them that they're just relaxed and happy with us. I mean, and when they- And you guys don't use smokers? No, God, well? no. No, 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 no. No, I don't use anything like that. If, you if don't own one? If the no. bees are upset, you know, and the, the swarm hasn't consolidated, well, then we don't go grabbing them. We, we like wait. We wait, we watch, we listen, and we work with them. So that way we're able to put our hands right right in, inside of them. Mm -hmm. and, and they're happy. It's like they're fine, we're fine, everybody's relaxed. And I have a, a bee friend who lives over near Jacqueline who actually ships his hives down south, you know, for, for the bee migratory mm -hmm. almonds and all that. And whenever I come into his bee yard for something, um, he says, well, don't you want to put on a suit? No, he said, I, I don't get it, but I'll go there and he'll lift up a hive and I'll put my nose in and I'll go, hi, hello. And he said, they don't bother you. And I said, I, it, cause it never occurs to me that they might. Yeah. And, and so when and you we're being respectful. Way, yeah, I, that's the difference is that we're being respectful. I see on these lists that we're, I'm on a bunch of beekeeper lists um, and I'll see, oh, my bees were really angry today. I took the top off and they flew out and they stung and I had to go, you know, uh, and I think that's a message and you don't have to be too smart to get the message. It's like dog comes out and bites you, you know, it's like not now. stinging not you. That's a day that you don't, and you don't know what they're doing inside the hive. There are some delicate operations. There's moments when a new developing queen, for example, is actually suspended by a, a little mucousy thread for a while in her development. If you open up a hive and clang boards around and all that, you could break that little thread and she's dead in the hive then. So that would be a time when the bees would go, no, stay out. Um, right. There are times when it's, it, it, I mean, we're saying this, but I can't even remember the last time I went in a hive. It's been years. Really? Because because everything I need to know, I can see outside. Yes. I can tell if there's pollen coming in, the babies are there. They're being fed. I don't have to go into the brood nursery and 
break it all up and have a look and go, yep, they're there. I know they're there. Um, it, you can see by the quality of the, the flights, you can see by the nature of their temper. Um, you, can, you can tell by the ease of their movements, how they're interacting with each other. Are they on alert? Um, and, and if they are on alert, what might be the reason for it? You get to see all kinds of different things. I was down in um, Dominican Republic and I got a, uh, I got hired by the USDA to go down and work with rural beekeepers, old school beekeepers. And um, Mikhail Tilly, I invited him to come with me. So the two of us went. We had a time when someone said, we've got a hive and oh, they're just terribly cranky. And we're thinking of actually suffocating the hive, killing the hive because they're just so awful to be around. And we went over there and I did put on a, a bee hat because they said they're going to sting you like crazy. And I'm unfamiliar with this hive. So Mikhail and I went over and we looked and Mikhail kind of went underneath the hive. It was, it was on a stand about three, four feet high. And he said, oh, look, this is interesting. They have an open bottom because it's a Caribbean warm weather area. But the bees have been filling it all in with propolis. So instead of it being a ventilation area, they're actually making it a solid area. In the meantime, I was on the other side of the hive and I said, oh, this is interesting. They put it up against a tree that had a forked limb at the bottom. And inside the forked limb was a very intricate spider web, a multi, like a three-dimensional spider web. And there were little bees that were flying back to the hive. They got caught in it. They got caught in the hive, in the uh, web. Spider web. And then they were going, you know, me, 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 help me, help me. You could actually hear the sound of like be in trouble. The bees in the hive were hearing this, I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble, help, something awful's happening. And they were actually trying to close over the bottom so that it would make the hive itself, the colony, safer. So that was like, you know, there's nothing wrong with these bees. They're on high alert because there is danger next to the hive. You need to do two things. First of all, take down the, the web and get it out of there and do that every morning until in, sometime in the next few days, you can move this hive, I'd say 20 feet over there, you know, do it incrementally so they know where the hive is. And I heard later that that fixed it. <laughs> oh, wow. Isn't that, isn't that That's just a matter of observation. You know, yeah. that hive would have been put to death. Right. No one taking the time to look and Michaela and I were able to go, oh, there's a reason for this, as there always is. Right. In, in my shiffer tree this last spring, I've got a shiffer tree that, that's uh, something that Torben has developed and it mimics the logs. I've got one in my front yard. A swarm went in, they went in early in the season and in six weeks, they started to swarm because if they build up fast, six weeks, and then you've got secondary, you've, you've got swarms. So it's like, okay, so I watched one go out I watched another go out, I watched another go out, and I watched another go out. And at that point, then I knew that they were done, and I started watching at the entrance. And at the time that the fourth group went out was when all the pollen quit coming in. Mm. And I knew that, okay, they'd sent out their main queen, they'd sent out several virgins, whoever was the queen was who was left in the hive, didn't make it. Mm. And so I, I knew that immediately. I never saw pollen going in again. And I knew within a couple of weeks of just watching, I've lost this hive because I know enough with our bees that I have tried in the past when I was more conventional or just learning to on a hive like that, can I introduce a new queen? And in hives that seem more natural, they my hives won't take it. it. It's like, we won't accept a new queen. We would rather perish or wait for another swarm to move in and help out or something, but we will not accept somebody who's not related and is just stuck in, they just wouldn't take, take them ever. Mm -hmm. But it was like, the minute I saw it, when the pollen stopped, I knew like that. Yeah, they, they well, that's- able to craft her. And that's another difference is the swarming. That's a big difference. So I have been, you know, I've been beekeeping for a couple of years and, and I came up the conventional route. So I'm in the process of switching. 
um, and trying to relearn and unlearn and, um, and, but, you know, I've been taught like do everything you can to, to prevent a storm. Right. And it's the opposite. So can you go into that? Like why it's important for the swarming? Well, swarming is a natural activity. And anytime you remove a natural activity from, I don't care what kind of animal it is, if you remove it from them, you essentially change who they are. And the bees in a swarm, what what happens for, um, I'll just give a little bit of history of why swarming is important in the first place. Swarming is how bees, how they create another colony. So one colony becomes two colonies, two colonies becomes four. And typically, um, well, when a swarm happens, it means there's enough success inside the home of the hive that they've got extra. And so they'll lay a few queen eggs and a queen will be born um, to who's going to replace the old queen that's going to leave with her swarm. So on swarming day, oh my God, it's so incredibly exciting. I, I've seen so many swarms and they all, this is a signal and they all come out, all the, all the bees that are gonna take place. And it usually would be anywhere between 10 and maybe even 30,000 bees come out. And I've been right next to the hive when you see like, oh, someone just gave the signal and they pour out of the entrance of the hive like, like water in a waterfall. And they just come out and whoo, come up into the air, and they'll, depending on how many there are, they'll, um, they're all moving around, and the the volume of the space just gets bigger and bigger. It might be like thirty feet by thirty feet by thirty feet, and I can stand right in the middle of that hive and think of this. So let's say you've got a moderate size swarm of say fifteen twenty thousand bees. 15 or 20,000 bees are flying around in this 30 foot sphere and nobody is bumping into each other. I mean, think of the consciousness that 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 colony has to have to be able to fly without every, I mean, think of it if we were humans and you put that many of us in that small area and said, now go fast. That's right. (laughs) It would just be nuts, chaos. And it's not like that. There's, and the other thing I want to mention about it, be, having been inside of swarms so many times, there's this jubilation, this joy that you can just tell there's this extreme happiness of them doing it. Um, one of the things that I got as information from the bees in Song of Increase was about swarming itself. They said, um, when typically in normal beekeeping, conventional beekeeping, well, this is a big mess. This is how a beekeeper would think of it. Like, first of all, I'm gonna lose half my my colony and that's gonna be less honey, less workers, uh, a financial loss. So that's one reason, but also there's the chaos of it, which I think kind of freaks them out. And if it's in public, people get scared. They think bees are gonna come attack. That's like the last time in the world they'd be thinking of that. There's just there's no reason to attack because there's nothing to defend. They're outside their home and they're heading someplace else. They're heading to a new home. When I asked about the importance of swarming, when I asked the bees directly, that was one of the pieces of information they gave. They said, if you prevent swarming, um, well, actually, let me say this a different way. When I was asking conventional beekeepers, why do you, why do you, um, prevent swarming. They said, uh, no, actually I'm saying that backwards. There's a process in conventional beekeeping where each spring you replace the queen. Mm -hmm. And this was one of the things I learned in conventional bee school. And I said, replace the queen. But I've read that queens can live five, six, seven years. And they said, no, every year the queen becomes infertile after the first year. So we have to take the old queen out, pinch her, kill her and then replace her with a new queen that's young, vibrant, and has fertility. And that was the thing I asked the bees about. I said, you know, I'm not fond on bee killing, so what's the deal here on killing killing queens? I mean, I didn't sign up for that, and I'm sure I'm never going to do that. And they said, what happens in swarming 
is that the queen comes out. She's the last one out. <laughs> when you have the chaos of the hive, the colony just all in, in many directions all around. Then finally, the last and biggest bee, the queen, comes out. And she flies in the center of the swarm with them to their new home. When she does that, up until then, she's been inside the hive that whole year. And she's in darkness. She lives in darkness. She doesn't come out and forage for food or gather pollen or everything is done for her. Her role, she's fed and watered and cleaned and she lays eggs. That's what her job is, her fertility. Um, the bees said that what happens when the queen comes out is she's exposed to the light of the sun for her flight. And that turns on her hormones again. And the hormones... Allow. Now you just had that aha moment, didn't you? Yes. And it makes such perfect sense. She comes out of the sun, her hormones turn on, it rekindles her fertility for another year. So when you thwart swarming, when you stop the swarming, the queen doesn't come out and get her fertility woken up again. And the conventional beekeepers are right. The queen is not fertile anymore. She has to be replaced. <laughs> I wouldn't wow. say replaced. I'd say you have to let them swarm so that the queen can maintain her fertility. Yeah. Well, and, and you mentioned, you know, you're create we're you're helping the population of bees across the planet. Yeah. So yeah. rather than containing and making like massive more honey, more honey, more honey. Exactly. That's the big difference in is between the two approaches is like the, you know, the honey yields. It's it's all about the honey yields with the conventional. I think that the way to put it is to say convention for conventional beekeeping, they look at the bee, bees are looked at, and the conventional honey keepers say, you work for me. Mm -hmm. And Jacqueline and I say, we're working for you. What mm -hmm. do you mean? And, yeah. and that's the difference. That's and the, I have experienced this in my own shift where it's like the way that I was taught, it was like I had to find the dominance, you know, it was like, okay, how am I going to make them think that, that I have control here, right. <laughs> which is uh, a tall order when you're dealing with bees. Um, and then as I've like started to embrace this approach, it really is this like listening and this um, communion, you know, how can I understand how, what you want and, and how can I help you? And, um, and it's amazing. And one of the things, Jacqueline, when you were talking about the swarming and how there's this chaos, but there, but it's not chaos, you know, there's this intelligence and there's this consciousness. And when Mikhail was on, um, like a year ago, um, on the podcast, he talked about the apian being, yeah. And how there are these individual bees, but they are all part of this big mammal, um, this apian animal. Um, and that's just what that made me think of. It's like, yeah, the consciousness, it's like a one, it's one consciousness that they're all tapping into, that they're all sharing, which is a symbol of this bigger thing that's going on here that is that we are all a part of, too. And that's one of the, the messages of Song of Increase uh, that I took from it, too, was just that underscoring of how it's like a, a representation of, of a much bigger thing that's going on. Just, well, just there's a real knee-jerk reaction about swarming in conventional practice. And it's like, if, if you let your swarms go out, all your neighbors are going to hate you. You, you. You're not a good neighbor to do this. And I've been collecting swarms in my city. I'm, I've named myself the chemist bee lady and um, everybody seemed to believe it. And so, you know, calls come in anywhere in the city and I'll go out. I, swarms are the most beautiful teaching moment because you go out there and, you know, the people see me show up in a tank top shorts and barefoot and, you know, I'm kind of working my way up to the tree and I'm like putting my hand under the bees. Are they settled? Are they calm? Are they resting? Do they get loud? How are they doing? And, and then when the bees really settle, I'll invite people over and say, you can touch them. They're as warm as kittens. 
And the people will say, really, really? And they'll come over and everybody wants to do phone pictures of them with their hands on the bees. And then they share it with all their friends and go, the bees are really cool. They're friendly. They're warm as puppies. And those moments, people will never see bees the same again after that. So the baloney about, oh, your neighbors are going to hate you. It's like, no, the bees are out there to teach and I'm out there to help them teach. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I love that. And it's making me want to go and do, I'm, I feel like this is the year I'm going to expand into swarms. I have avoided it the last two years. It's a big, steep learning curve. And again, like I said, I feel like I'm relearning everything, but um, I'm, well, I'm- Let me make it easier for you. Yeah. Because that was how I, I kind of made that transition too. First of all, when I started getting swarm calls, people knew I did something with bees. So they got the first swarm call. It's not that I knew a lot about it. It just kept happening. So I did. I, and I moved, moved and touched hundreds of hives by swarms by now. Um, when, um, let me mention one thing. I want to go sideways for a minute. Um, when I hear people talk about bees a lot, I hear them talking about the importance of them in our food production, that they pollinate two thirds of the foods that humans eat and without bees, we'd be all stuck. I kind of get a little plugged in on that because it's like, bees are not thought of as value in and of themselves. I don't care if they are pollinating my food. I mean, of course I want pollinated food. I want to have mangoes and apples and blueberries and all that. Of course I want that, but that isn't the reason that they're valuable. They're valuable because they're in and of themselves little beings that have tremendous consciousness and do so many more things that help the world itself. Um, I would love to take bees out of the category of bees working for us and making our lives better and have it be that other way around. Bees are here because they have tremendous value for a bazillion reasons in the world. Even the thing like the sound of them, the sound in the landscape does something to the world. You know, things that you don't normally think of and I've come to understand is true. In these, the difference between these two books, Song of Increase, the first one, and then uh, What Bees Want, this next one, is in Song of Increase is like I was hoping to explain why bees are important. And in what bees want, this is the how, how to do it. So that's the distinction between the, the two books is, and this is how you, um, how you take care of bees in the way that's the most bee-centric. Okay, I went off on a tangent. What was the question I was answering? Well, you were, I think you were talking about, you were about to talk about swarms. So Susan had talked about the community. And the swarms. So yes, thank you for, so in the swarms, every time I got a swarm call, I think, first of all, it's a time when bees are in danger because I remember one time driving down my road and a swarm had just landed on a tree by the side of the road. There was a long front yard and there was a kid who looked to be about 10, 12 years old with a can of rain spraying no. the swarm in the tree. Oh, my heart fell just like, no, this is the point where I was looking at, this is our culture. We've made such a mistake that this kid who knows nothing other than what he's been taught, this kid thinks that bees are so dangerous that a swarm, one of the most peaceful little beings you can find, was dangerous and should be killed, poisoned. And um, anyway, that, that just breaks my heart. Um, in the swarming, initially, I would go to prevent stuff like that from happening. I would go and rescue a swarm. And a lot of times they were rescued. There'd be someone standing there on the side with a camera raid in their pocket. Oh, I mean, wow. You know, if you don't get them, I'll be your backup. It's like, nope, nope, we're fine. Yeah. The way, the way Susan and I do this now is I don't, I don't collect swarms anymore. And you can jump right to this step. <laughs> oh, Okay put homes up for them. I guess. And they I, occupy them. 
They yes, you talk about this in the book, and I find this completely fascinating that you it, you called it like bait. <laughs> you know? At bait hives. They, yeah. We put them out, and when the scouts are going out before the swarming, the scouts are going out and looking around for, where's my new home going to be? And then they find one of the many different kinds of hives that we put out. Uh, they go, whoa, this is a great place. And uh, I've actually seen times when there's scout hives from different hives finding the same bait hive and going, no, no, this is mine. No, no. <laughs> and that little face on the front, front porch there about, no, it's mine. Oh, wow. You know, we're going in the right direction when many bees want, want these empty hives to become their new homes. Right. Yeah. That's, That's wonderful. Another thing that I've discovered that's surprising to us, uh, given the scientific literature, and, you know, Mikhail would give you the same explanation that generally bees prefer to be about a, like a quarter mile away from e each other. They don't set up housekeeping close in. And my experience has not been that. I live in a city yard in a small town, so I can't spread my hives out a quarter mile here and there. And I'll have bees move into one hive, and then another swarm of bees will come and move into a hive 20 feet away. So I'm thinking that the swarms that I've had that I haven't caught that have just gone off way up into the hills, they all know that these hives are still here. There's this ancestral memory of going back to the places where you were and saying, oh, okay, here's one. It's empty. It's loaded. Um, and so there's this like now over all these years, there's this coming back to this place that's familiar and comfortable and has had good accommodations. So I think that they, I think the bees know every available cavity in the two mile area. They've, they've checked them out and they kind of know ahead of time. So if you keep putting hives out there that are well insulated and have some honey in them and evidence of old bees. Um, Mikhail told us, and so I've actually got a box of this now, that the most attractive thing in a bait box, in a box that you're trying to attract bees to, no is wax moth poop. No kidding. So I always keep like, I have this box of old comb that I leave outside and months later, if you go in and look, what it looks like is, it looks yeah. like charcoal colored sand. It's about that texture too. And if you take a handful of that and throw it into a bait box, the bees go, wax moths, this has already been cleared out. Wax moths have been here, bees have been here. He said, keep that stuff, it is, it is like gold. So it, you know, it, it's when you put the hives out there, we're experiencing that yeah, that the bees if, you, if you were going to say this to anybody who is oh. a conventional beekeeper, they say you're introducing wax moth comb to hive. That's nuts. But if you think of it from the bees' perspective, the they have these interrelationships, the relationships with other insects, and the wax moth is one of them. The ins, the um, wax moth, its job is to take old comb and reprocess it, chew it up and eat it. So. You could open up a wild hive and look in there and yeah, there'd be some wax moth down here. In conventional beekeeping, you would of course kill that stuff mm -hmm. and get them out of there, but they're fulfilling a role. They're cleaning up old comb that's of no further use to the bees. They don't come into the center of the hive and do it. They do it on the peripheral edges and mm -hmm. it's not frequent either. It's just when needed, they come in and do that. That's learning to respect a relationship and yeah. understand that, you know, this may look like, oh, there's bugs in my hive. I have to get rid of them. It's like, no, these are just other workers helping work on um, uh, work on uh, something that needs doing. Yeah. yeah. Respect that too. Let's give them opportunities to have homes that have many different kinds of native, natural um, little insects and beings in there. Right. Yeah, that's beautiful. Beehive is truly a village. I'm, Michael Bush says there's, you know, four to 8,000 different critters and organisms living in mm -hmm. a healthy, thriving hive. And so he said, why would I poison any of these? They're all important. Some are certain bacteria, certain yeasts, some are certain 
um, you know, other kinds of chemical substances and there's tons of critters. In all my hives, I have wax moths in them. I, I never think twice about them. Now, if you've got a box where the bees are really struggling, then the wax moths might be taking over, but bees don't struggle in my small hives. Everything's there for them. So they can keep the wax moth population under control. Now, if I grabbed a deep and put it on top, well, all that wax moth patrol would go right out the window. It's like, nope, all, we can't even deal with that. We just have to build, 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 build. And so when you end up with hives being overtaken by yellow jackets or wax moths or hive beetles, it's generally because, you know, the hive can't be strong or, or they would be able to manage all that. These aren't invaders. These are symbionts. Or they're giving, or they're giving you an indication of something about the hive. They're all pointing to something about the hive. And if I, if if you have a hive taken down by yellow jackets, Mikhail Teeley will be the first one to tell you that they're not a natural enemy really? of the honeybee. A, a comfortable, strong hive will against have no problem jackets. defending itself. Okay, see that's news to me. Jackets. Yeah, and I have, I have never lost a colony to yellow jackets. Mm -hmm. I, I see yellow jackets all around the bottoms of them, kind of working the dead bees and stuff, but they're not in there and they're not crossing mm -hmm. the borders on a healthy hive. So, yeah, so it, it, it's like, oh, do I have to kill them all? No, I just got to watch my hive and make sure, okay. make sure the hive is That's strong. That's great info. Thank you. Okay, so is there any low-hanging fruit per se for beekeepers who have a conventional approach and maybe are being inspired to um, do a more bee-centric approach? Any kind of easy first steps to begin that new relationship? The health of the hives is really our primary focus and we want that to happen naturally. We don't want that to happen because we, you know, did a big course of antibiotics, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. Um, we want that to happen because the structure of their home itself lends them to being the healthiest they possibly can be. The forage around the area, we can be responsible for that too. I live on, I'm lucky enough to live on a farm and we actually do plant forage on a large scale. You know, I'll put in a quarter acre of sunflowers to get the bloom and the season that's right. Um, low hanging fruit, I, I'd actually say I, I'd like to invite people who are not beekeepers to play on this too, because forage is so important. Flowers, just need flowers. And the best flowers to plant are always the ones that are gonna bloom in your weakest season. So I live in the Pacific Northwest. We've got spring covered. It's such, we have such, you know, warm, wet winters that spring just blooms like crazy. Early summer, tons of bloom. Late summer, we get into a bit of a drought. Late summer, early fall. There's not nearly as much food available then. So that's what I gear all my plantings of flowers to is what's going to bloom in August, September, October and give them a good start. So wherever you live, planting good, healthy flowers that are good pollen sources is probably the most basic thing you could do. Now, I would, I would say for low-hanging fruit, if you're a person who's got langs and you've got a bunch of them, is take one deep and two mediums. Put the medium on the bottom and that's your echo floor. Fill it full of garden junk. So all the little symbionts can have a place to be. Ant nests, springtails, leaves, everything, leaves, whatever. Put it in there. And would that be actually on the ground? No. Or is that elevated? Never on the ground. I, that's Not what here I thought, in the Northwest ever. Up, 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 up. The bees would never nest in the ground. They nest with in the a ground solid like, bottom? like in the Rockies, solid bottoms. Yeah. Mm -hmm. those, three, feet, three feet high. They yeah. really want, you don't see them in the wild in, wet. I think in 20 years, once I saw a wild hive that had a very, very low entrance in, in a hollow tree. And I suspect it was just the entrance that actually the hive itself was probably a good deal higher. Every other one I've seen has some height off the ground. So basically all you need is an open bottom on your deep. And then you just set, you know, your your medium under it with the detritus in it. And 
we also recommend, I, we, I know that nobody else recommends this, so this is pretty controversial, but no frames. The bees are not appreciative of frames. The frames totally destroy their ability to um, really control the heating and cooling inside the hive because those empty spaces on the side, that's like a wind tunnel. So the bees can't section off private rooms, which is how they live in a normal hive. They can protect. In fact, I've even been reading lately where if there are sick bees in the hive, they will actually have quarantine areas in the hive where those bees can be and they're sealed off. So you put the medium on the bottom, above it, you put um, a thick- and Susan, let me put in. When you say detritus, what that means is broken up sticks and leaves and you know, kind of the things you find on the forest floor. Or, yeah. Go ahead. And then, and then a landing board, right? Or the bottom. They board. don't need it. What I, what we do, is we have discovered that yellow jackets and other critters cannot uh, easily pierce what we call the bee gauntlet, which is a, a, a little three or four inch piece of bamboo, about an inch to an inch and a half diameter and we'll drill a hole in the hive and put that in. Any invader is gonna to have to pass through this constant gauntlet of bees that are coming and going and they can never breach it. Yellow jacket swarm can't breach that. There's always bees in it. So we just pierce it with that. And I don't need landing boards. You know, I'm just watching the bees on the face of the hive and they kind of start moving like in a spiral toward the entrance. It's a very different kind of a look but it's a small entrance hole. And, and that's all they need. You gotta, oh, they need more ventilation. No, they need to maintain their ventilation. The more holes you have in the hive and the longer slit bottoms, the more work they have to do, the more work they have to do to keep the heating and cooling the way that they need it. So on the top then, okay, you've got your little echo floor with all these little symbionts living down there happy. And then on top of your empty, you know, uh, deep, you would put a nice piece of like cotton canvassing or something. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you would place your second medium. And in that second medium that's now separated with this, you know, nice piece of stiff cloth. Um, or you can even put strips of wood to even support that cloth not going down any further, just a few strips of wood across the top to support the canvas. And then there goes the medium and the medium gets filled with either straw or um, wood chips. So that makes it so that there will never be cold condensation water falling down onto the heads of the bees. They're able to maintain and cool. And then on top of that, you would put some really solid top, like inches and inches and inches of wood mm -hmm. for insulation up there along the top. And then you need to find some way to insulate that whole box. Now for myself, in a Lang Deep, I would also put thick triangular pieces of wood in the corners because air doesn't move well through those corners. Bees don't work in corners. Nature doesn't do a lot of square spaces you know, things are curved mm -hmm. or rounded or buffed. So I would put those triangular pieces so that the inside of the hive will look a little bit more rounded so they can move the air the way that they need it. And then just let them build the combs any darn way that they choose. And if you don't have a deep, I've got a lot of mediums. Would you think two mediums sure. in, in the place of a deep or just one medium or get um, a deep? The deep is going to be the body of the hive. So, right. that, so I would stack, I would stack like, does it do three mediums make yeah. a deep? I think it's two, isn't it? It's two. Okay. I, I think it's two. So See, four mediums should be okay. Alternative forms for so long that hard for me to remember these now. Oh, <laughs> yeah. uh, well, thank you for but that. That's, that's an easy way to do it. You've got the lang, you've got the mediums, you, you know, put some strips of wood across super insulate that box, whatever way that you know how. If I were doing something like that, what I'd probably do is I take a Lang Deep, you know, box, and then I grab a single box off a Warre Hive. I'd stick the Warre Hive inside the Deep, 
and I pack straw all around the side. And then I've got my super insulated hive. And then I have my little bamboo tube that just goes right through the two of them. Yeah. And then you go from there. So, you know, it's just, okay. it's just, I, I lived on a sailboat for a couple of years. So when you're on the boat, it's like, I got to make this. I got to fix a sail. I have to put up some kind of a wind thing. I've, we need this. And it's like, well, what's here? Yeah, <laughs> and then you put it together from what's here, and you can put together a, a marvelously serviceable hive from pretty much whatever you've got in in your backyard. Right. Wow, that's fantastic info. Thank you, Susan. So let me flip that question. If you so do, you guys still have this pictures oh. in the book that that cover all of this. Oh, wonderful! Yes, yes, with illustrations. Yep, that's great. Um. So let me flip that question. If you, are you still okay on time? Sure. Uh-huh. Okay. So are there any big no-nos that people take for granted? So either from a beekeeper perspective or from like a bee lover gardener um, perspective. Sure. This is this is kind of a potent one. Don't take honey. Everybody thinks this is the reason that most beekeepers get into keeping bees in the first place is to take the honey. Um, but what I understand is bees, bees, they build up their honey stores. And what happens is a beekeeper will say, wow, it was a great year. I had tons of honey in the hive. So I took a whole bunch of it and left enough for the bees for the winter. But what we don't count on is the fact that the bees have an, an understanding of this year was full. Um, it was easy. There was lots of pollen. There was lots of flowers. Next year may be different. It could be dry. It could be fire. It could be too much rain. It could be fires. Um, and when you take honey, you're not allowing them to plan for the future. So it's kind of like you know the checking account <laughs> goes longer than just a week or a month or a year. And I want to encourage the bees to have, as in the wild, that they have access to their stores for you know the next five years. And I think that's really important. People say, well, you're a beekeeper and you're not collecting any honey. Hmm, how's that work? There are always going to be hives that fail. So I have never had a loss of honey. Sometimes the hive fails and I say, okay, that'll be a hive I take some honey from. I frankly, I'll be honest with you. I usually split it into cutting up some of the comb in case I ever needed in an emergency to give back to the bees. And some of the honey I get to save myself. I don't eat nearly as much honey as I used to in my early days because I try to treat it more like it's a sacrament. It's something that bees worked so hard to make this that I should be more appreciative of it than every day taking a spoonful and putting it in my hot tea. Um, it's just the, the way that I've evolved over the last 20 years to understanding that it's not all about me, me, me. It's about Yeah, it's a dichotomy. It's a paradox because the honey is so beneficial. There are so many health benefits, and the same with propolis. You know, you know. I'm so I'm glad you're saying this because you can also understand that it's more valuable to my body that if I eat it, I take the moment to be in great and gratitude for it and say, you know, thank you. This is healing medicine for my body, and I so appreciate it. Rather than the heaping spoon of honey in my tea every day that I just drink because it's sweet and that's fulfilling. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah, think of honey as a sweetener. I think of it as medicine. Yeah. So I take make, it as medicine. And if everybody mm-hmm. just took honey as medicine, there wouldn't be a problem. Way before we ever kept bees in hives, originally bees were kept in walls of houses and huts. And there would be a little indoor door And if you needed a comb of honey for something, you open the door and you snap off part of a honeycomb and you close it. You don't like take the whole hive down and harvest the whole thing. You take what you need. If you need some propolis, you scrape it off. If you need some wax, you pop off a wax comb. But, you know, you take a little, but you leave mostly everything there for the bees. It's it's not like this. It wasn't industrialized. And when we started to industrialize it, that's when bees started failing. That's when we, and kind of in our culture, pretty much when we industrialize anything, that's when everything starts failing, right? That's when, Right. that's it. I mean, you know, maybe yeah. we shouldn't be machine makers. 
<laughs> right. Working more in cooperation. Yeah. With with the planet for sure. Yeah. So what about you, Susan? Are there any no-nos that people may just totally take for granted as as even as a gardener or or as a beekeeper, as a bee lover? Just a big no-no for me has got to be pesticides. The last mm. three years, I've lost almost all of my hives during the winter. And what I believe is happening is something has happened here and I have some new neighbors somewhere that are doing some spraying at some point. I think, okay, during the summer, my bees are coming back, maybe slightly marginalized. They're collecting nectar now that is maybe less than optimal, but they only live like five, six weeks during the summer. They're living mm -hmm. through that. It's during the winter when the honey is in there and they're supposed to try to last for five or six months. Their life is much longer. I think I lose them to pesticides over the winter slowly because I'm not losing them to mites. You know, I go through the combs and I look, you know, is there, are there obvious signs of mite contamination here? And usually almost always it's, it's like, no. So mm -hmm. it's like, no, the hive goes into the winter strong and their stores are strong. And then by midwinter when they've lived, you know, a good couple of months, then they'll start to fail. And I think that's because something's happened with the forage on my hill. Mm -hmm. And they're able to make it for their few weeks, but they're not able to make it through the whole winter with, with that amount of toxicity. So people may say, well, I don't spray my flowers, but I spray my lawn. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It, you can't spray anything. <laughs> you just mm -hmm. can't do it. People don't realize, you know, it's not just bees that are damaged by that. You know, I was just listening to Doug Tallamy's lectures about, and he's talking about how many caterpillars a bird need, a baby bird needs to eat daily, like 30 a day. <laughs> I mean, they would, wow. depending on the kind of bird. And that means like when you find caterpillars in your garden, this is bird food. This is like really important. Stop, stop trying to kill everything and let, let nature have their menu. Um, what is the statistics these days on the dearth of insects in the world? Wasn't it something like three quarters of the insects in Germany, was it? I, I've forgotten. The, I'm not the, sure, but the most recent statistics I've heard worldwide is a good 35% drop overall in all insects. And many insects are now on the endangered species list. Yeah, endangered list. Because, and a lot of it, I believe, is really this, what seems to be an innocuous amount of um, pesticides. You know, people think, oh, that won't matter. It's just a little, it's just my little garden. But it is, it does matter. Everything, everything touches everything else. Yeah. Well, there's this goofy little meme out there that I read that really cracked me up. It shows up on gardening sites and it's, if something's not chewing up your leaves and flowers, then your yard is not part of the ecosystem. <laughs> and that's the truth. If nothing's being nibbled on, you don't have a lovely space. You've got an artificially created bunch of something that's not, not helping the world. I mean, aesthetically, it might be nice, but then you'd be just as good to put out plastic flowers and plastic plants. As, yeah. as to spray them to the point where no bug is going to touch them. And then mm. you let your kids and your pets walk through that and brush past yeah. it on their clothes. I just saw a big article for Roundup showed up on my TV screen yesterday and like, oh, it's so safe and it's fine for your, your pets and family. And man, it'll really keep the weeds out of your lawn. You can just spray, spray, spray. And I'm thinking oh, they should have a split screen that's talking about the incredible billions of dollars that are going out to payments with people with cancer now. And they said, and you don't even have to have been working with Roundup in a commercial setting. This is people spraying in their backyards are winding up with lymphoma is one, and I forget what some of the other ones are, but it's like, how can you be advertising this as perfectly safe when you're being sued all across the nation for people dying for spraying this stuff. It's a crazy right. world. Here's yeah. the statistic. It's revealed that over 40% of all insects are declining and a third are endangered. 
That's wow. Believable. Yeah. Wow. At least wow. a million species are facing extinction in the coming decades, half of them being insects. Half. Poor little wow. insects. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this discussion. I hate to leave it on on that note. Um, but can we, can you each tell us how people can find out more about you and, um, and your offerings? Do you have any, do you have any lessons coming up? Are you doing anything online where people can learn like the, the class where you two met? Um, our website is whatbeeswant.com. And this, there's a really nice set of, um, actually a lot of the stuff we talked about in more orderly fashion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So you can look at the, the 12 tenets of beekeeping and things like that, where it goes into like, what is the, in, in short pieces, what is um, in the book is on the website with pictures. And videos. And yes. Susan and I each have our own individual websites. I have spiritbee.com and I have a newsletter that you can sign up with and that will keep you apprised of any classes that we are doing. And Susan, why don't you give yours? Um, I have two websites. One is... SusanNylands.com, and that's where I just do kind of a lot of kind of my more nature and spiritual writing. And then and that's Susan I, with a K. Susan with a K. Nolan with a K. Susan and Islands. <laughs> yes, and then, I'll put them in the show notes too. And then I've I've got um, American Skep, uh, which is mm -hmm. on Blogspot, so people are um, encouraged to go there if they want to learn how to weave and what it looks like to keep bees in straw. Oh, wonderful. And do you have any classes coming up? No, right right now, we've just kind of, the book is like just out and we're just kind of planning kind of what, what to do next. There's a list of podcasts and things coming up and things yeah. like that. I've got about six or seven different things I'm doing in different countries, but they're all being done by Zoom. Normally, oh, okay. I would have my passport in hand. <laughs> Yes, but not quite yet. But anyway, there are classes coming up in different with different organizations and interviewers. Um, and we'll try Susan, we should just keep try and keep that on our website. Should, yeah, do a page on that so people know who's talking where and when. And you can do the same thing. Send us your link and we'll post it there as people can okay. come and listen to this. Yeah, absolutely. That'll be great. Wonderful. Well, this has just been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for being here. I so appreciate your time and all the wisdom and everything that you're doing for bees and for nature and for the planet. Really, um, just thank you so much. You're welcome. It's our joy. Thank you. Please share this episode. I appreciate your support, rating, reviewing, and sharing. So... Thank you again for listening, and I look forward to the next meditation conversation.